0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. I am your host, Craig Hanks, and I am joined today by two special guests, Ken and Julia. How are you guys? Doing great. Hi. Hi, Julia. Hi, Ken. Now, Julia and Ken are obviously, first of all, very shy, and we're going to bring them out of their shells. But also, they're the co-authors of an upcoming book. It's the start of a new series, as I understand it, the Phoenix Horde series. Uh, and the new book is, I, I should say, I, I think I said it's coming up, but by the time you all hear this, it will have already come out. So we're going to be talking about Ebony Gate here at the end of the podcast. And it uh, sounds pretty interesting. So I want to get the pitch from these guys, but we'll wait uh, for a few minutes to get that Uh what what's see what am I supposed to do? Oh yeah, the thing I do every time housekeeping. go to the you can find links to past episodes. You can find links to the Discord server where you can join in the conversation. and also the Patreon feed of course. if you enjoy what we do here and want to support the show, we would much appreciate that. All right, that's all done now. Here's what I want to do is introduce the two of you, Ken and Julia, because I, I feel like by just saying here's who I am and here's what my background is. That's going to be a great kickoff for this show entirely. Uh, We're going to be talking about the level one out of of our three-level theory, and I'll explain more about that. We're going to be talking a lot about level one, but let's find out why. Ken, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, So, yeah, my name is Ken B. Bell, and I just got into writing probably about six, seven years ago. Prior to that, I was a practicing prosthetist, uh, which means I made artificial arms and legs for a living, and I did that for about 25 years. And uh, Julie and I actually started writing when we were very young in um, middle school, and and then we, we did a couple projects back then, and we, we picked up again when we were a little older, and after we had gone through uh, lives and kids and so forth. Uh, but right now we write uh, Asian-inspired
0: uh, fantasy and science fiction. So Asian-inspired, give me a little bit more with that phrase. It's uh, Asian-inspired meaning what exactly?
1: We, well, I mean, at a very basic level, we like to set our stories in Asian cities and we like to incorporate uh, Asian myths. Uh, So whether it be ghosts or monsters. uh, So we try to Um, incorporate the kinds of things that our parents talked, uh, the the kinds of stories that our parents told us when we were young and uh, the the kinds of myths that we don't see in a whole lot of uh, books that are on the shelf these days, although it is getting better. So uh, we we like the fact that it's, it's it's definitely spreading.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Julia, tell me a little bit about yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Julia V. My job was not as exciting as Ken's. I don't make artificial arms and legs. I'm just a trial lawyer in Silicon Valley. Um, (laughs) I'm sure you have plenty to do then. I'm also still day jobbing, but for the most part, when Ken and I talk about Asian inspired fantasy, mostly we look at books that we loved to read ourselves when we were younger and then say, Mm. well, wouldn't it be cool if we made it Asian? And in our view, that's just incorporating the family dynamics of what it's like to be Asian diaspora, some of the wonderful food, and of course, the myth and lore that comes Mm. from um, East Asian countries that we're familiar with.
0: Yeah. it's uh, So what I'm hearing is then the stories are fun, the stories are interesting, but... Kind of the that underlying base layer that it's all built upon is going to be super familiar to somebody who grew up in Western Europe, America, Canada, that sort of thing. Like that's going to be if you're watching Indiana Jones, whatever. There are certain assumptions you can make about the culture that he operates in uh, that that you don't have to question, right? And so you're taking some of those base layer things and just shifting those a little bit so that it's more familiar to a different audience, uh, a more Asian centric audience.
2: Yeah, Ken and I are Gen Xers. We grew up watching most of the big franchises that everybody in the U.S. is familiar with. I was a huge Tolkien reader like we read all the western stuff like all the dragonlance in fact ken <laughs> are you right now trying to find all the print dragonlance
1: i'm i'm lamenting the fact that several years ago i i purged a ton of my books from my shelves and i got rid of my my mm. mass market paperback copies of the was it the dragons of autumn twilight that that very first chronicle series with the the really bright vibrant colors um yeah, they're, they're gone. And I think the f- the first time I tried to look for those on eBay, I think the books were going for like $60 in terrible condition.
0: Mm. Is this where we take our first legendary tangent and start going off on, hey, kids, keep your physical media. Oh, <laughs> if yeah, you love definitely. it, <laughs> keep it. It's Yeah. It's uh, a lot of people are running into that with, um, you know, you'll buy a title on Prime Video or something and you're not renting it, you're buying it, you pay the 20 bucks, you get it in your library and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we're not going to offer this title anymore and they yank it out of your library without telling you. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're like, wait a minute, what, didn't I spend 20 bucks on that? And they say, no, you spent 20 bucks for the rights to stream what we have in our library and it's all messy and keep your books, everybody.
2: I mean, you're talking to people who grew up with cassettes, so we all have inherent distrust of digital media.
0: <laughs> absolutely. absolutely, Yeah. And, which, of course, is making a comeback now, along with vinyl. Uh, I love watching Gen Zers and their cassette players. It's adorable. Uh, Ken, I, I did notice one thing in your bio that I did want to point out that was just fabulous, hey, the, the, how you got into prosthetics. Let's see. Many kids who love science fiction become engineers or astrophysicists or comic book artists. I turned my childhood love of Star Wars into a career in prosthetics, which of course made me think, all right, here's nine-year-old Ken sitting down watching The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker gets his hand chopped off, gets back to the Millennium Falcon, and then you get that great shot with the, f- the, hand, the flap on the back yep. of the hand with the yep. gears underneath it, and they close it up, and, and nine-year-old Ken going, What? How do I do that? Tell me it was something along these lines. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, like Julia said, we 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 grew up watching all
1: those uh, TV shows and movies. And for for me, Star Wars was just like I lived and breathed it when I was really little. Um, and watching Luke get his hand, that, that just set me off on this path. So I was one of those weird kids that... You know when high school ended i said i just need to find a place where i can go to college and learn how to do something in prosthetics and from mm. my senior year in high school i i was singularly focused on doing that and ended up spending the next 25 years of my life doing it and even to the point where uh, much later in my career when i started teaching at local colleges I would I put together a, like a three hour presentation on prosthetics and the first 15 minutes was just Star Wars clips and anime clips and all this <laughs> just different pop culture of characters getting their limbs cut off and replaced with, you know, really cool gadgets. Um, it, it was it was a great way to open the conversation and uh, definitely keep everybody awake for at
0: least the first 15 minutes. Did you ever get to work with any individual patients or was this all a lot of like classroom uh, research kind of behind the scenes kind of thing?
1: Oh, no. Uh, my, most of my 25 years was all seeing patients. So I, I, my day to day was seeing patients come in, fitting them with arms and legs, getting them back up and walking, getting them back up and going to work and things like that. So it was, it was a very clinical, very rewarding job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, Well, yes. Okay. Fine. Rewarding, you know, delightful. Really, uh, really cool. All that stuff. (laughs) But really, no, really all I, I just want to imagine you in the clinic with somebody who has several prosthetics and you get to uh, tell them you're more machine now than man. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. That that's uh, in my imagination. Also, In more than one occasion I had, I would have a patient come in
1: with a shopping bag or a duffel bag full of arms and legs, and say like, All right, I broke all of these. I need you to fix them all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so speaking of Star Wars, etc., cetera, etc, cetera, we were talking a little bit before we turned on the the microphones here uh, about what we might discuss today, and I want to talk to you guys about level one, and here's why. Well. I, because level one is, has been getting shortchanged on this podcast and everywhere else for that matter. And I'm here to use you guys to help me correct the, the record here. So I'll give people, including you, uh, a little refresher on what the three level theory is. Uh, if you have heard this a million times on the podcast, just hit the fast forward button for a couple of minutes. That's fine. Uh, But if you're new to this, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the three level theory is something that we came up with way back, I think in like 2014, when we were talking about Mistborn. Um, And it's this idea that I had that stories, this isn't the only way to think about stories, but one way to think about them is that they exist or can exist on three different levels. And the first level, that base level is, uh, is the story itself, the plot, the action, You know, the story, for lack of a better word. And level two is when we get into the social and political commentary. Uh, So a great example of that would be something like South Park. South Park is the ultimate level two story. You know, The Simpsons might be something else. Uh, 1984 uh, would be maybe a more highbrow version of a level two story. And then you get to level three and that's the personal or interpersonal commentary. How do we view ourselves? How do we improve? How do we uh, relate to those closest to us, right? So the more intimate type of commentary. That's all great. But I know, I know because Todd has been hosting a lot of episodes on this show lately that we've been talking a lot about level three and I wanna bring it crashing back down to earth. I wanna talk about level one and how awesome that is. Because you guys, like you said, you're Gen Xers, you're huge fans of kind of those big franchises that we grew up with, the, the, the properties that we all know and love, the Star Wars, the Indiana Jones, the whatever else. Um, and I thought we might have a conversation about this. Julia, I want to kick it to you first. When I talk about those three levels, uh, the idea that, um, sorry, I should expound on it just a little more uh, and say that I do think that if you're going to, if you want to have an effective level two story or an effective level three story, you have to start with your base base layer, which is your level one. You have to tell a good story first, and then you can put some other stuff on top of that, you know, whether it's light, whether it's heavy in that level two, level three category. But does that ring true to you? Uh, And can a story exist purely on level one?
2: I am the kind of person who can enjoy a story on level one where it's just for fun, right? In fact, the entire class of books that I read for a while, I think someone called them girl with sword. And I don't think of those as necessarily really heavy on social commentary, although, of course, the setting itself can be a social commentary, especially if it's like a cyberpunk or dystopian setting. Um, I enjoy stories purely for the entertainment aspect, first of all. And then my movie watching is about the same as Ken knows. Sometimes he'll watch something and he'll be like, oh, this is not for Julia. Right. And, and he can determine what, <laughs> what he means when he says that.
0: What do you mean when you say that, Ken? And and feel free free to respond to what I was saying earlier too. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, I
1: definitely it, the story has to be there, right? It has to it has to entertain you first, and, and then you can get in all the other stuff. I think when I'm looking at whether or not I'm enjoying a movie, it it's it's all about like the feeling that it gives me, right? And and am I sitting there? like sucked into it? Or am I like thinking about like the time that I'm losing because (laughs) I'm reading this book or I'm watching this movie? And yeah, so that's, I think that's really important. I think in the instances where I've, like Julia mentioned, like said, like, I don't think she's going to enjoy this. I, I think I recognize from our shared experience, the kinds of of things that turn her off and I can say like, okay, no, 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 this, this is not going to be in your wheelhouse. Um, if it's too scary, if there's too much gore, you know, the kinds of things that, that, that take her out of it.
0: So, yeah. So even within, you know, what, what I'm calling level one, there are different categories, right? A a Western may resonate with you in a way that a horror movie doesn't, um, don't watch bone tomahawk. Just don't do it. Um, it but uh, yeah, that's... I, I don't know. Ken, you're laughing. I don't know if you've seen that. But it is no. uh, a shockingly horrific Western.
2: <laughs> just the title alone is a word it, for
0: me. It is <laughs> right? rough. So, I mean, okay. So, just go on. Go on, Ken.
1: No, I was going to say, like for me, the, like, the fact that if I turn on the TV and National Treasure is playing, and it doesn't really matter where it is in the movie and I'll end up watching it all the way to the end. You know, like that's not highbrow entertainment, but it's a really damn good story that hits all like the sweet spots for me, right? Like the the secret rooms and the puzzles and like the the hidden societies, like that kind of stuff really appeals to me and it's I think it's when it when the story appeals to you on that kind of level. It doesn't really matter Like what kind of mood you're in it just it just puts you into the mood and you're like oh wow okay i'm gonna sit down and lose the next two hours but i don't mind (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: it's how i feel about like james bond or tomb raider right like they're movies that i really enjoy but i don't know that you could say that there was a real deep psychological meaning or lesson you could take away from these stories um I just took the kids to see Across the Spider-Verse, and it was Ooh, yeah. incredibly entertaining, really good. And I think it had both. It had just all the dazzling things, you know, music, sound, story, character development on the level one. But even at the level three, right, about what you believe, mm-hmm. um, what you think you could do as an individual, it just really hit on all those notes.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I think Marvel movies are a great example of something that's uh, that is as a rule it kind of lives in that level one hey we just want to tell a good story we want to uh, take you out of your life for a couple of hours give you something else to escape into and then when they're able to when it makes sense they pop up into especially that level three that personal and interpersonal common commentary Of how we relate to ourselves and others but every once in a while they even do level two as well i my favorite example from marvel for that is uh captain america and the winter soldier um but anyway that's uh maybe maybe a different discussion for a different day but i i love that that marvel knows that yeah sometimes they've earned the right to kind of like Pop up and give you something uh, in those upper levels that they've earned by telling you a good story that makes you care about the characters, care about the consequences, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if that's still the case as much as it was in the first decade of Marvel movies, but uh, yeah, I don't uh, know. But what I'd be phase interested to the track. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Phase Eighteen. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that
2: Guardians of the Galaxy ending. Oh, the new one? Yeah, it was pretty intense. It was not like the first one at all, but I still think that, like you said, they earned everything. So we're we're there for the ride, right? And the deeper level
0: story. So let's throw a few titles at each other and then we'll we'll talk more, you know, philosophy about level one stories and all that stuff as we go. But uh, favorite movie that is to you, pure escapism. There's really nothing else to it. It's just a good time at the movies. For me, it's Pacific Rim. People know this. I've talked about it a few times on the podcast. I think it's just the perfect example of a level one movie.
2: Uh, I love Pacific Rim, but mine is probably Tomb Raider, the first one.
0: The first one with uh, Angelina Jolie? Yes. Amazing. Um, because I rewatched that
1: twice just recently uh i gotta say john wick um because oh that's just yeah. it's the best it, to me it's got all the the kinds of things that i like from tomb raider and from uh national treasure um just all the all the secrets and then all the amazing action sequences as well
0: it's uh, it's a never-ending thrill, right? I yes. went and re-watched that first one recently, and I watched it with my wife, who hadn't seen it yet, and she said, uh, well, no, I, I think I said to her about two-thirds of the way through the movie, I said, how, how are you doing? <laughs> you like, with the story, and she goes, what story? And I was like, okay, good, all right, you've caught on, all right, good, glad to hear it.
2: <laughs> i mean john wick is so amazing because of the world building right it is like uh, obviously all the action sequences are just incredible i love all the hand-to-hand combat but the secret world aspect with their own currency their own mm. rules that just all of that is so good
0: there's a uh blurb a dvd blurb that i remember from years ago uh the people of a certain age, i.e. mine pretty much exactly, might remember the TV show Veronica Mars. Uh, It was like a UPN show and then it was on the CW and um, it was about a teenage girl detective in Southern California and it's absolutely ridiculous and it's the most fun thing you'll ever watch Uh, and it's what gave the world Kristen Bell. So we have to thank it forever. Um, But on the, the DVD cover, there was a quote from Stephen King of all people who, and he said, it bears little resemblance to life as I know it, yet I can't look away. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's always stuck with me as a way to describe a movie uh, you know, or a lot of movies or stories. I, I mean, I want to keep throwing books in there, too, but uh, uh, stories that that aren't, we're not trying to learn some grand lesson here. John Wick is not teaching us anything about how to live our lives. At least I, I, ho- I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's not true for some people, but please don't let John Wick inform your moral decision-making uh, <laughs> or anything like that. Yet you can't look away, right? It's, there's something there. So when someone says to you, uh, you know, I don't like, science fiction i don't like fantasy i don't like stuff that's uh, exists outside the real world because that's just escapist what do you say to something like that when you're watching john wick or pacific rim or james bond it that's just escapist
2: i personally use it for escapism like all fiction so i can't even understand a response like that
0: (laughs) what do you think ken um I mean, yeah, I
1: I, I got to echo Julia here that I, I, I read and watch all this stuff to get away from the real world. I mean, that's that's kind of the point of it. Um, even the stuff that does manage to get up into level two and level three, uh, like you said, I think all of it is still escapism at some point. Uh, it's just whether or not you get taught a lesson while you're along for the ride.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh Julia, if you're a Tolkien fan, you might have run acro- across his quote wh- which I'm going to paraphrase very poorly, but it was something along the lines of, uh, you know, in his very Catholic way, he thought of uh he thought of life as a prison, the, this mortal coil and all of that stuff. Um and he said something along the lines of if someone if, if you were in prison and someone offered you a way out, why wouldn't you take it? Of course it's escapist. Now enjoy it. That's what it's there for. Uh, and then Ken, I like what you said. It's, uh, once you're out, are you going to learn any lessons or, or not? Is it just an escape? I think that's enough. I think it's enough to, you know, to beat the kind of rat race of life or whatever you want to call it. Just uh, get out of that for a minute and then yeah, go back to and, it later refreshed.
2: And Tolkien was this very serious academic, right? So you can imagine he lived a, a fairly, um, typical academic life right and you can read his books on that one level just for enjoyment for the story for all of the high points this epic fantasy this world he built or you could use it for allegory for harder things that were going on in real life but me personally i just like to read it for the story
0: (laughs) all right well i let's talk to you about your story um, and what you guys both what you have written I want to tell people about what you have done and then what's coming out uh, this month Um, and how that all fits in with this normally I I was telling you before we started I I usually carve out like five minutes at the end to uh, do an elevator pitch and then say hey thanks thanks for coming but I I actually kind of want to extend this part of the conversation a little bit and say what have you guys written? And uh, and where do you feel like it might fit in this levels theory that I've got, the three levels theory? Um, but yeah, give, give me a sense of, let's start with what's coming out this month.
2: Okay. So July 11th, and I guess by the time the readers are hearing this, it's already out in the bookstores. Yep. Uh, the story that Ken and I pitched as Asian female John Wick with Dragon Magic is <laughs> is going to be released in the world. We wrote this story during lockdown. So as you can imagine, when we were just talking about escapism, and like the prison feeling of of this mortal coil, uh, for sure, Ken and I were trapped in California, where there were all these fires and the air quality and the sky was like that mm. dystopian orange. Um it's really exciting that this book is coming out three years later. You know, traditional publishing was also delayed because of mm. um the pandemic as well. So the already long publishing schedule is uh, was a year added on to it.
0: Ken, anything to add? Um yeah,
1: like like Julia said, I, I hadn't thought of the the writing of the book as escapism, but I mean we did so much of it, uh, you know, through and leading up to pandemic and then and then all of all of that that happened um yeah it's it was i'm just remembering back to like the first time i went to a movie theater during pandemic and we went to see shang chi and we uh, we rented out mm-hmm. a theater and it, it was it was exactly that it was that that breaking out of that prison and and just getting away from the world for a little bit and uh, the the book yeah. uh, the book is like it's to me, it's the what we've been trying to achieve of of blending our the the Asian myth and the the family dynamic and all that and and mixing that with all of the urban fantasy that that we really loved uh, to read. Um, before we wrote this, uh, we were writing a military science fiction series that we self published years ago. And when we were looking at, like, well, what do we want to write next? You know, we looked at our shelves and we said, oh, my gosh, you know, we read all this urban fantasy. Maybe we should try writing urban fantasy. And then uh, we blended it Mm. with this idea of the, you know, the Asian dragons and Asian myth and threw it all together, threw in a little bit of our uh, Chinese diaspora experience. And uh, it came out uh, with
0: something that we're, uh, I think we're both really, really proud of. And with this story, so you're talking about Ebony Gate. I, I just want to, I'm going to say it as many times as I can. Okay. So people you, go Frank. and Google <laughs> it, you. right? So it's Ebony Gate. <laughs> it's part of the Phoenix Horde series. Uh, that That's horde, like as in a treasure trove, not Correct. as in the Mongols are invading. Uh, yeah. So uh, people can go check that out. And of course, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's not going to be difficult to find. Just, uh, you know, hit the button and you'll get there. But anyway, with Ebony Gate, uh, as it relates to this three levels theory that we've been talking about, um, I I want to ask you about about whether a story and whether your story can exist only on level one, because I would argue it, it can't. It can't actually do that. You can't never go up into levels two or three. So you take something like Pacific Rim and you have the the kind of um, it it rides the line. I think it's a platonic love story between the two leads. Um, they they never spell out that it's romantic, but the, you know, whatever. Um, but there's that kind of camaraderie between the two leads and how they interact with each other and their father figures and and all of that. And so that kind of just just a dash of that level three. Fuels it gives you a uh, something to keep the level one going, right? A reason for these things to to happen. Maybe level two would be, you know, with the social and political stuff. Maybe that would also potentially provide stakes for uh, whatever the plot is. But where does your story exist, Julia? And uh, and what do you think? Can't do you have to use levels two and three? Okay,
2: clearly we started with one. Right, we started with level one, like why don't we tell this really fun adventure story set in San Francisco with all of these monsters and um, this kind of secret world within this world, right? But when we were writing it, we realized that Emiko's story is a story about being an outsider and becoming an insider. And that's a level three um, theme, Mm. right? Because most of us can understand that feeling of going to a new world Right, whether you you know go away to um, school or you move, most of us have like a different um, set of rules that we're navigating between home and school. It's obviously more pronounced in a science fiction and fantasy story where the mm. second set of rules is magic, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And at the beginning of but it's uh, Ebony like Gate, you say,
0: it's a very sorry. Go ahead, Ken. I was going to say at the beginning of
1: Ebony Gate, um, Emiko is also exiled from her family. She's in. She's self exiled. From her family, and so the, there was mm. there was a lot of that I think baked in that we we figured out in the writing about how a lot of this was also going to be about her getting back to her family and kind of figuring out her place there as well.
0: And I, I want to ask the two of you uh, a kind of. Uh... a a different question. Actually, I'm trying to decide if I want to hold off on this. No, let's let's stick with this. Okay, so uh, I'll leave that question for later. So we've got family dynamics. Uh, We've got, is she going on an adventure? Give us a little bit about uh, what she's up to. Oh, so
1: yes. Uh, uh, Emiko is just making her way in San Francisco when uh, a death god shows up on her doorstep and he's holding a blood debt. As they do. Yeah, well, as they do, yes. Um, Well, when when your mother is uh, like Emiko's mother and she gets into all kinds of shenanigans um, and then those shenanigans fall on Emiko's doorstep and she has to pick it up. um, So she needs to satisfy this blood debt and help the death god close a gate to the underworld that's in the middle of San Francisco. And she has two days to do it. In the middle of Golden Gate Park. Yes, yeah. And she has two days to do it, or uh, else either the ghost will overrun San Francisco, or the Death God will use her soul to re-anchor a new door and close it.
0: Hey, it's, 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 either way, it's success, yeah, right? You know, it's a it's an easy week. So it sounds like <laughs> what would you say? It was uh, it was John Wick, girl with sword. Dragons. Uh, am I, am I, is that the, no actual dragons in it?
2: this book? I don't want to oversell it. It's dragon, dragon magic. magic,
0: dragon magic, dragon <laughs> magic. Um, no, it's, uh, it, as you <laughs> between that and then this description that Ken just gave, it's, uh, what if, what if the Ghostbusters had had John Wick on their team? Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. There you, you know, go. It's funny. We had
2: this. We, we had this Shinigami, this death god, and somehow he became incredibly bureaucratic. You know, he's this busy official in hell and he has other things to do. And it's like this, this like administrative checklist that he's going through, whereas for Emiko, it's her immortal soul at
0: risk. Oh, my gosh. So, so now I'm bringing in shades of uh, screw tape letters or, you know, something like that. It's all very templatized, d- demonic templatization. Uh, he's got things to do there print that on a t-shirt <laughs> that's awesome
2: it's funny though because like four books we did notice a lot of people used other properties to comp for ebony gate right mm. so when we asked our um fellow authors to blurb the book a lot of them did use properties like shang chi or mm. doctor strange because of that feel to it right
0: yeah well, there you go. It's uh, it. I I both love and well don't love comps uh, because you're like ah, you know this work should it, it should stand or fall on its own and let's not have to reference everything. But at the same time, it's like hey. If I want to get an idea of what I'm getting into, it's helpful to know kind of what realm this exists in. And so, yeah, I have a love hate relationship, but uh, but I yeah I use them obviously. I just did. So um, okay. So <laughs> what age group is this aimed at? Are we talking YA stuff? Is this getting into adult territory?
2: It is an adult fantasy. But I do have teenagers and uh, tweens. This book has no profanity and no sex. So low steam. It doesn't really have uh, anything objectionable. So my kids have read
0: it. Yeah, nice. You're not playing in the blue or the red. (laughs) All right, good. So I, okay, now I want to get to my other question that I was holding off on, which is uh, away from the philosophical level one, three, whatever stuff that we've been using and just kind of get into what it's like to co-author a book. Uh, The reason why is because I don't have a lot of co-authors that come on the show. I have a lot of authors that come on the show, but uh, only rarely do I get co-authors. So I want to ask you about your process. Um, Why you co-author together instead of going alone? Uh, What are some of the benefits and, and uh, drawbacks of doing it that way. How did you, you said you've been writing together since junior high, um, but then you're not in junior high anymore. And now you have to collaborate as adults and actually create a, a real publishable book, uh, you know, and not chemistry class notes or whatever. So how do you, how do you do it? What's um, what, what does the process look like? Uh, let me
1: give you some context. So, When we started writing, when we were in middle school, um, we wrote a swords and sorcery epic. It was probably about 30 pages. Um, But we wrote it together uh, separately at home on our PCs. And then we would bring the story to school on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk and trade it back and forth in the hallways, and then just go back and forth and say like, okay, you write the next part. Okay, you write the next part and go back and forth like that. Um, so our, that was our first collaboration. Um, I still have a hard copy printout of it at my parents' house. Um, my mom was the last person Amazing. to read it. She'll be the last person ever alive to read it. Um, but uh, <laughs> we, we actually won $50 uh, <laughs> off, of that, um, off of that story by sending it into, uh, I think, a contest that I read about in the back of a book. Um, and
2: I'm pretty uh, sure we spent that prize money on like comic books or magic, the gathering cards. uh,
1: Probably. Yeah. Comic
0: books for sure. Um, and then, uh, for me, it would have been the, the five and a half inch floppy disc version of star Wars chess that I played ah. uh, religiously through the (laughs) nineties. Yeah. So um yeah I yeah. mean
2: thank goodness for technology cuz we, now we have Google Docs. Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, it does it does streamline the process a little bit. Ken, I'm sorry. You're you're on a little bit of del- of a delay. So uh I, we've been talking over you, but go on.
1: No, it's fine. Um so uh through high school we went we we had more collaborations where we had like a dystopian story that we didn't finish and I think there was like a, a Regency type of fantasy that I remember Julia coming up with a lot of like gowns and names and hairstyles for. Um, we had tons of notes and those didn't really go anywhere. Um, and then we didn't start collaborating again until after we'd had kids and uh, Julia had done NaNoWriMo in what, 2017?
2: Yeah. So. Um, I was living in Northern California and Ken was in Southern California. And, um, I think at that point, you know, our kids were older, you know, we had a little bit of breathing room. It had probably been 30 years of not writing at that point. And uh, I I don't know what happened, but I decided to do NaNoWriMo. And after banging out 60,000 words or something, I said to Ken, you know, I think I'm going to take a writing class. And I took an online writing class. And then I flipped him, like, the 5,000-word story. I'm like, write the next chapter. And that just kicked off the beginning of, um, I guess, what has now been six years of collaboration as adults.
0: Right. So in, in your case, then, it's not... Uh, oh, I'll be the ideas person. I'll, I'll help you outline the story. But you're the writer. So you actually put the prose down. You're both doing both parts of this as you go.
2: Yeah, we write simultaneously and um, in the same document, sometimes at the same time, because we both like to write in the evenings after dinner. Mm. Um, we have written the same sentence before. In the really document. Uh, we can write in the same paragraph together. It's really fine. Um, <laughs> if one of us has a much um, more established vision of the scene or where something should go, they'll just run with it. And we come at story very differently. Um, I actually can't see a scene very well until I block it out with words. I think Ken's process is a little different.
1: Yeah, my yeah, process. No so, my process is a lot more visual. Um, I'll actually imagine the scene in my head as as if, as if I'm watching a movie, and then I'll basically transcribe it out from that. So if Julia gives me an idea and says like, "Oh, you know, I think the next scene should do something like this," then I start seeing it, and I start I start writing it out. Um, and yeah, like like Julia said, it's our process is very fluid. Uh, back and forth between the two of us. We'll talk a lot on the phone almost every day, um, working out story problems, figuring out you know where does the story need to go next? How do we figure out these particular problems or sticky spots? Uh, it's really nice because we rarely have instances where both of us are, are stalled out on writing at the same time. So if one of us stalls out, yeah. usually the other person will pick up um, and just keep going. And then that helps the person who was stalled out kind of pick it back up again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, which, it's, there's no sorry, writer's block.
2: Yeah. There, I was just going to say, there's no writer's block. Cause if he stops at a scene and I keep writing, he might read that portion and say, no, that's not what I had in mind. And then he can sort of smooth it out the, uh, in a way that he can, um, you, you know, uh, get it going with the rest of his scene. Whereas mm-hmm. for me, I, I, typically like to pace it out right so i i am very outline driven um even though we will deviate wildly from the the, from our our draft outlines into synopses (laughs) before we are actually drafting um in fact a year after a book is you know done i'll look at old notes and be like wow we wrote a totally different
0: book but (laughs) it's all right it means we can still use the first outline usually thought of as uh... (laughs) <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, just it's been a different story. Yeah. Use the same outline. And, uh, I will not name any names, but there are plenty of authors out there with uh, very, very long series, uh, you know, detective novels or mysteries or whatever, who you, you can kind of see the base outline and then they just spun up some <laughs> different details and threw it out there. So <laughs> there you go. There's your shortcut. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, writing is generally thought of as a very solitary pursuit, right? We have the, the image of the writer kind of hunched over the typewriter, or the these days, the keyboard going at it. Uh, but do you prefer writing this way? Uh, do you still like to write alone? Or is this kind of the only way that you want to do it these days?
2: You know, we have um, been writing short fiction separately, uh, mm. and that's a really... Uh, I think, helpful process um, as an individual writer. But when we work together, it's almost like how television writers have a TV room, right? And they're collaborative. So I feel like I get the best of both worlds by doing yeah. that.
1: And even in our, yeah, you as well our short fiction, yeah, even in our short fiction, I think um, we, we'll still bounce the finished product off of each other and say, hey, you know, take a look at this, tell me what you think. Um, so it, it's, like Julia said, it's great. It's, it's like having a, a constant critique partner to take a look at what I'm writing and, you know, kind of point out my, my faults and say like, you know, you need to stop doing that thing that you always do. And then, okay, all right, I'll fix that.
2: A real time editor. <laughs> we really have like our own writing ticks. And because we have been writing together so long, like he can spot mine a mile away and I can spot mm. his. And we know like what the other person's favorite words
0: are, right? Eldritch. So, so if Robert Jordan had had a writing partner like this, there would have been significantly fewer arms folded under breasts <laughs> uh, or uh, I don't know if you, pe- people who my listeners are laughing their asses off right now. I'm just going to take that one to the bank. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, all right. Ken Bell and Julia V, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Again, the book is Ebony Gate. By the time people hear this, it just came out. So go check it out. I'll, uh, I'll make sure I tweet something out or, or put something on our Discord to let people know uh, that you guys are coming on so they can pre-order the book. Um, but, uh, but now it's out. So go get it. It's the Phoenix Horde series. And you're also the authors of the Seattle Slayers series. Right. And, uh, people can check that out. That's like a YA adventure series.
2: Yeah. Uh, we that... call that one GI Jane meets Buffy.
0: There you go. Yeah. The, the covers I'm looking at the covers and uh, that seems just about right. <laughs> yeah. So people can go check that out. It has a new installment coming out later this year, as I understand it. So, um, anyway, they, people have got things they can, they can go take a look at. So Ken, Julia, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you
2: so much, Craig.